I hope you have your Bibles this morning. If you have them, would you please find 1 Peter chapter number 3. 1 Peter chapter number 3. And all the women groaned as they find 1 Peter chapter number 3. While you're finding your place in 1 Peter chapter number 3, I heard a story of a husband and wife who had been married for 60 years, Lee. And as they'd been married for 60 years, they, they believed that they should, you shouldn't keep secrets from each other. But Dennis, uh, the wife, had kept one secret from her husband. And she got real sick. And while she was on her deathbed, she told her husband, she said, I've been keeping something from you that I need to confess. He said, well, what is it, honey? He said, well, look under the bed. And looked under the bed, and under the bed was a shoebox. He pulled that shoebox out, and he placed it up on the bed, and he said, what is this? She said, I, I would like for you to open it. He opened up that shoebox, and there inside that box was one crocheted doll and $95,000. He looked at it, and he looked at her and says, what in the world is this, honey? And she said, my mama always taught me that in a good, happy, healthy marriage, you never should argue with your spouse. And she said, every time we argued, I would crochet. And he looked at the box and he looked at her and said, 60 years, honey, there's only one doll in here. Boy, you sure do love me. You've only been upset with me one time. I'm so grateful for that. But can I ask you a question? What's the $95,000? Where'd that come from? To which she said, I sold the rest of the dolls. All right, let's look at the text this morning, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. Notice what the scripture says. Likewise, which means this is something that we are all, we've already discussed this before. We've been talking about this now for several weeks. Uh, we have shifted from the, from the very uh, uh, practical application of salvation to now the practical application of submission. What Peter's saying is is that it's important that as a born-again child of God, when you live in the culture that you live in, that as long, as long as it doesn't go against God's Word, as long as it doesn't go against God's Word, then you are to submit to the government authorities, you are to submit yourselves to those bosses that are over you, and now he's going to talk about marriage. And he says, likewise, that is, in the area of submission, ye wives... Be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Now let me stop and say this parenthetically as we make our way through this text. In verse number 1, it is very plain and very obvious that we're looking at a Christian wife, a Christian wife who is married to a non-Christian man. Okay, so this man's lost. He doesn't know Jesus Christ as his Savior. Remember Peter's writing to uh, present-day Turkey, to Asia Minor. He's writing to an a area that's controlled by Rome. And so we're finding here these churches have started. People are getting saved. What happens when a wife gets saved before her husband? He says there in the text. He gives us what needs to happen there. Verse 2, he says... While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. The word chaste there is an adjective. It means pure. So while your husband sees your pure 
conversation is always conduct, the way you present yourself. He says, so as he sees your pure conduct, and it ought to be coupled, it ought to be connected to fear. The word fear here in the text means a reverential spirit of respect. He says this reverential spirit of respect, not that you worship him, but you respect him as your husband. Even though he's lost, even doesn't know he doesn't know Christ as Savior, he says you've got to do this. It's vitally important because your conduct, again, may win him to Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Whose adoring, let it not be that of outward adorning, of the plaiting of hair, of the wearing of gold, or of the putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart. So you'll notice here in the text he uses the term man here. Uh, this is where we get uh, uh, the, the term uh, uh, for uh, uh, anthropocy uh, when talking about the study of man. He tells us here, this is something that ought to be done for every human being. Every human in the world that's born again, that knows Jesus Christ, has something hidden in their heart. What's hidden in your heart as a Christian? The Holy Spirit. He says you got the Holy Spirit living inside your heart. That's what ought to be coming out of you, verse 4. And the Bible says, In that which is not corruptible, even the ornaments of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Ladies, turn to your husband and say, I don't think so. <laughs> All right, hang in there with me. Notice the next part. He says, whose daughters are ye? You are her daughters, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Uh, that word not afraid with any amazement gives us the idea that you are not carried away by any intimidation that your lost husband might have living in the culture that you're living in, all right? Then he goes on uh, to say in verse 7, Likewise, now remember this is just like Peter started up there in verse number 1. Likewise, so that takes us back to chapter 3, verse 1. It takes us back over into the area of submission in regards to our bosses. It takes us back in the area of submission to government. What he's saying there in the text, and we'll look at it here in just a few moments. He says, likewise, husbands, there's some submission that you've got on your part. Look at what he says. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Peter just basically says this. Husbands, Christian husbands, in respect to your wives, that is also saved, it's vitally important that you know how to live with them because it affects your prayer life. The way you live with your spouse as a Christian husband will affect your prayer life. 
So what does all this mean? Well, let's look at it for just a minute if we could. First thing we need to do is we need to understand the context. In 1 Peter, we know that he's addressing Christians living in Asia Minor. We know these Christians are highly uh, persecuted. We know that Nero is on the throne of Rome. He's the Caesar. He hates Christians. He hates everything about Christians. There are these Roman gods that everybody's supposed to worship. There's this Roman worship philosophy that's out there today. It's very religious. It's very haughty. It's very ungodly. And this is how Asia Minor operates. Asia Minor operates under the rule of Rome. And as these Christians have come to know Christ as their personal Savior and Lord, a lot of the ladies, a lot of the women uh, here are coming and trusting Christ before their men. And so while in Palestine there was this patriarchal system where women were suppressed, in Asia Minor, historians have told us that there were, there were a society where women had some rights. They even had the right to vote. They had the right to have public office. They were allowed some property rights. They also had their own business. They ha- held some predominant roles in the pagan religious arena. So that they had, if you would, a little bit more freedom, if you would, other in, than they did in Palestine. But when Christian women married non-Christian men in this area, they were still vulnerable uh, to persecution. Christians in Asia Minor experienced this persecution and mistrust, so they simply, by identifying themselves as a born-again child of God, they would receive persecution from Nero, persecution from the government, persecution even from their workplace. People would boycott their uh, businesses. And then on top of that, the husband would get mad and he too would be upset with his wife. So ancient authors saw that this shared religion, if you would, of a husband and wife carried a great deal of harmony in the home. And any time in, in the ancient world when a wife would go after another religion, in this case, a pure, true religion of trusting Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord, the culture would look at that as rebellion. The culture would look at that as them moving away and getting away and busting up the home. And they didn't like it at all. So in keeping with the words that he's already spoken to Christians about in regarding submission, he puts marriage underneath the same basic text. He says it's vitally important for you to understand that as a born-again child of God, God has established the home. And as God has established the home, he has had to put some things in order so that that home will function properly. Remember, anything with two heads is a monster. Anything with one head is dead. And so the goal here is to see this husband come to know Jesus Christ as as Lord and Savior. It is also a key point here in this passage of Scripture in verse number 7 for the Christian husband to take a responsibility and lead his family in the proper biblical way. So when you look at this passage of scripture, I know some, some ladies get upset when they look at this text and they go, I just I get mad at this text because of the cultural meanings of the words in our day, number one. And number two, because Peter, he gives six verses to the women and only one verse to the man, and that has a tendency to upset people, but I just want to make sure we understand the complete context of Scripture. When you go to Ephesians chapter 5, you see that Paul actually will speak to men 
three times more than he does to women one time. And, and so there is this balance, if you would, in regards to fairness on the teaching of how we are to operate inside the home. But I want us to look at this morning very quickly two points. Point number one, I want you to see the commitments of a Christian wife. The commitments of a Christian wife, that's verses 1 through 6. And then in verse number 7, you see the commitments of a Christian husband. So let's look at, first of all, the commitments of a Christian wife. The first commitment we see is the wife's conduct. This is verse 1 and 2. The wife's conduct. Remember, in Roman society, there was a great potential for family and societal disruption when a wife came to know Jesus Christ as her personal Savior and Lord. And so the potential here was that here's this new, this new Christian, this wife, who has received the truth. The truth is living inside of her. Now, what does she want to do? She wants her husband to receive Christ too. And so in her zeal, she would become very dominant over her lost husband. And because God had saved her and because she had this new freedom in, in, her, in her heart and her life and because she's trusted Christ and she has the truth and the truth has set her free, she desires that her husband comes to know Christ too. And she becomes overbearing, if you would, in saying, you cannot lead our family anymore because you're leading our family in the wrong direction. We need to be going this way instead of that way. And Peter's just simply saying, listen, as a Christian citizen, as a Christian slave, as a Christian wife, it's very important that we understand that we are to submit to the structure that God has set up so that our conduct has the potential to win our spouse to Jesus Christ. Look again at verse number 1. The Bible says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. I want you to notice how this is a personal, pointed, uh, directional uh, point. He says, You, Christian wives, are to submit to your husbands. Now, this submission is not in dominance. And I... I Preach this message in fear and trembling knowing that this passage has been taken advantage of by many legalists and religious men who have used this to beat over the heads of their wives how they are to submit to them. That's not what is intended by this passage of Scripture. That is not what Peter intended. Uh, he did not intend for you to lord over your wife husbands to make them submit. No, that's not the point at all. Uh, he's taking for granted, Peter is taking for granted that in respect to Christian men, Christian men love their lives, uh, love their wives, love their life, and love their family, and desire that their family operate under the counsel of God. Where the husband is the head, the wife is the neck, and you can't turn the head without the neck. You work together as you submit to one another and make decisions and move forward for God's glory. So the first century church in Rome was suffering from the lack of this teaching. And Peter clearly says that it is your responsibility, wives, if you've come to know Jesus Christ before your husband. And if your husband, look at the text in verse 1, if any obey not the word, that is, you shared the gospel with them, and they have not received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord, he says that they may, without the word, without the word, your conduct be glorifying God in such a way that your husband says, there's a true change in your life. 
There's a true change in your life. And that change is Jesus Christ. And look at what he says. He goes on to say, he says that without the word, they may be one by the conduct, the conversation of the wives. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 2. While they behold your chase, that is the adjective of pure, your pure conversation. Remember what is that? That is your conduct, your pure conduct linked up with a reverential fear of God and a respect for your lost husband. Now, pastor, are you going to say anything about abuse? You better believe I am. Just like when it comes to governmental authority, just like when it comes to human authority in regards to our jobs, if a husband is asking you as a wife to do something that's ungodly, immoral, or uh, against the law. If he's beating you, if he's emotionally abusive, if he's physical abusive, God does not want you in that relationship. say, man, that, that, that is tough. That is hard. That is truth. You think about this for a minute. We're talking about a pagan culture. People were getting saved in this pagan culture. And in this pagan culture, as people were getting saved, we're finding here are these Christian wives. They're receiving Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. And if their husband is a Roman, uh, a, a Roman uh, uh, religious follower of the culture of that day, and he's just by religion only, they're not going to go to church, they're not going to go to the temple, they're, not gonna, uh, they're just by name a Roman. By the conduct of the wife, the Bible says. By her pure, chaste, coupled with fear, coupled with a reverence towards God and a respect to her husband, she can win her husband to Jesus Christ. He'll say, something's different about her. I want to go after that. But, if that husband is a strict follower of the religion and demands that the wife worship a false god, under God, she cannot practice that religion. And so the marriage may not last. It may not. Because the Bible talks about in regards to this issue in Corinthians, the Bible gives us this insight in regards to letting that lost husband go. Now, I know that's hard. I know that's tough. I know that is a difficult thing to think about. But in regards to the culture that this passage of Scripture was, was written in, the goal is not divorce. The goal is to win that husband to Jesus Christ. So the first thing we see here in this text is the wife's conduct. All right? Are you all okay? Say amen right there. Okay. Good. Let's look at number two because my time is just about up. <laughs> the second thing I want you to see is the wife's character. The wife's character. Look at verse 3 and 4. i got to hurry. The Bible says, Whose adorning, let it not be that of outward adorning, or the plaiting of hair, or the wearing of gold, or the putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which, that which is corruptible, even the ornament of, the, of a meek, excuse me, which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, 
which is in the sight of God of great price. Now, before we go, uh uh-oh, I've come to church with my hair braided today. I'm about to be in trouble. No, 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 no. Don't miss this. Let me first of all say what Peter is not saying. Peter is not telling women to look bad externally. I heard my preacher preach on this one time. Now, this isn't me. Don't you, please, don't you dare get upset at me. Please, I'm begging you. Hear this in the spirit. Tom, quit laughing at me. You better stop. He's like, I know what you're, Tom's sitting there thinking, I'm glad I'm not preaching through 1 Peter. (laughs) My preacher stood up and said, look, Peter's, uh, Peter's not saying that you're not supposed to look good externally. He says, every barn needs a coat of paint every five years. I was just a teenager when he said it. Even I looked at my mom when he said it with my eyes open. I'm not saying that. But what Peter is not saying too is that he is not saying it's a sin to look nice. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that at all. He's not saying it's a sin to braid your hair. He's not saying it's a sin to wear jewelry. He's not saying to avoid designer labels or even expensive clothing. No, none of these things are sinful. Can they cause you to sin? Yeah, if you go after them, they can. But they're not sinful in and of themselves. What he is saying here is he is saying not to focus so much on the externals that you neglect what you look like on the inside. What's on the inside is what matters. Now, we see this. We see this. We've got to go all the way to the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 3. You, you can write this down. Isaiah chapter 3, verses 16 through 24. The children of Israel, the women of Israel... They cared more about themselves and their outward appearance. And God sent a judgment upon them. Let let me read it to you. I'm going to read it out of the ESV uh, because it it, it speaks a little bit plainer. You can look at it when you get home. Isaiah 3, verses 16 through 24. The Bible says this to the ladies of Israel. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantingly with their eyes, menacing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike a scab on the top of their heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the the finery of the anklet and the headbands and the crescents and the pendants and the bracelets and the scarves and the headdresses and the armlets and the sashes and the perfume boxes and the amulets and the signet rings and the nose rings and the festus robes and the mantles and the cloaks and the handbags and the mirrors and the linen garments and the turbans and the veils. You see where their emphasis was. God says, I'm going to take that all away. And he says this, instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, you'll wear a rope. And instead of well-set hair, you're going to be bald. And instead of rich robes, you'll have a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. This is how God puts the emphasis on internal beauty. What's on the inside is more important than what's on the outside. 
we take this passage of Scripture and we have to link it with 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Again, let me just read it. You can read it when you get home. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. I, I read again out of the ESV uh, just for the understanding of public reading. He says, Likewise also that a woman should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly in all submissiveness. He's simply saying in regards to beauty, what God finds beautiful is not what they look like on the outside, but what you look like on the inside. So let me ask you a question, dear ladies. How do you look on the inside? Do you care more about the outside than you do the inside? Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed how makeup can't change an ugly disposition? You ever notice that? But, but we can turn the coin over and we can say this. Have you ever noticed how makeup can't enhance a beautiful disposition? Uh, or a, 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 be, a beautiful heart? Makeup, it starts on the inside. And God sees the beauty of the inside. If y'all received that, say amen right there so I can go on. Thank you so very much. Number three, let me give you a third one. Verse five and six. Again, we're just marching through the text. A wife's conduct, a wife's character. And number three, a wife's uh, comparableness. Or a wife's uh, comparable. That's what I'm trying to say. A wife's comparable. What happens in the text is Peter gives someone in the Bible to compare yourself to. Notice what the scripture says in verse five and six. Verse number five, he goes on to say, For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands. Now that word adorn themselves means that they kept up the appearance on the outside. They looked beautiful on the outside. He goes on to say, But they also were in subjection to their husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord whose daughters you are as long as you do well, and you are not afraid with any amazement. That is, you do not fear any uh, intimidation that comes from this lost husband. But you know the direction you go in. So remember this, ladies. There are some real cultural differences that's going on in the first century church in Asia Minor and what's going on here today. Let me reiterate. God is not putting his stamp of approval on a husband that lords over his wife and uses this text to control his wife. That is not God's intention here. God's intention in speaking to Peter in this passage of Scripture is to win the husband to Jesus Christ. And he says in doing so, it has a lot to say, a lot to do with the way uh, you operate, the way that you submit. He uses the term submission to your husband. Peter explains here in this text, and then he gives a woman an example to follow, Sarah. Now, <clears throat> if you study the life of Sarah, you will quickly find out that Sarah wasn't perfect. You will quickly find out that Sarah, in submitting to her husband, did not always submit to him. She did not always go with him. You'll find very quickly that when you look at the submission of Sarah, she submitted to him 
in such a way that where he led, she followed. And in following, sometimes she didn't like it. And sometimes she got upset about it. But when we find what happens here in Sarah's life, we find a wife that loved her husband and trusted her husband even when she didn't understand. Can you think about, remember, God spoke to Abraham. And God said, I want you to come out of where you are and I'm going to send you to a city that I have for you. I'm sending you to Canaan. And he explained to his wife, you think about this, ladies, what if your husband came home and said, I've heard from God, and we've got to sell everything that we have. I don't know where we're going. I don't know how we're going to make a living. I don't know. We're just going to follow what God says. If that happened today in our culture, a lot of ladies would say, you are crazy. Forget it. Sarah submitted to her husband as he led her to God. The Bible tells us here in the text, it says, women, you are Sarah's children if you seek to imitate her example. In Romans chapter 4, we learn that we're all Abraham's offspring. And because we're Abraham's offspring, we see the greatest thing that Abraham had was his faith. Sarah adopted that faith. So too, the challenge that we have, first and foremost, is that as husbands, we are to adapt the faith, adopt the faith of Abraham. And ladies are to adopt the faith of Sarah, which is the same faith that follows after the one true God. So he says here, in regards to the commitments of a Christian wife, if you're married to a lost man, there's something to say about your conduct. There's something to say about your character. And there's something to say about who you compare yourself to. <clears throat> I think about today in regards to our ladies, especially our young ladies here in our church, our teenage girls. They need godly examples to look up to. Man, in this social media world today, uh, it, it used to be, you know, you just go to the grocery store and you could use this illustration as a pastor. You go to the grocery store and you look at the magazine racks and you see all the models. There's no, there's no inward beauty at all there. All you see is external and what the world says external beauty looks like. But that's not the only place today in the grocery store. It's everywhere you turn. Everywhere you turn, this culture focuses on small segments of people's lives to highlight the absolute best of that individual and to project the culture's view of beauty on this society. Brothers and sisters, I'm simply saying this. A beautiful woman is a woman that fears God, that obeys His Word, and that desires that His husband come to know Christ as Savior. But if you are in a relationship where your husband is physically abusive, if you are in a relationship where your husband is verbally abusive to you, and even emotionally abusive to you, it is vital that you get the help that you need. God does not intend for you to be in a home where you get physically beaten. Number two. 
Let me say in regard to the commitments of a Christian husband. A Christian husband would never treat his wife like that. A Christian husband clearly understands that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord over his life. And because he is Lord over his life, there is very important areas of his life that he knows as he surrendered to God that he lives out in his home. So we see Peter clearly says this, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. In fact, when you look at this passage in closing, there are four things. I've got to give them to you quick. There are four things that Peter says to husbands in regards to the commitments of a Christian husband. Number one, we see a husband's courtship. A husband's courtship. You see what he says in verse 7? Likewise, he says... Husbands, dwell with them. Stop right there. Likewise, husbands, dwell with them. So, what does likewise mean here? He used it at the beginning of the text. Here he's using it here. He is telling husbands that they are called to submit themselves to their wives' courtship and to their wives' needs. Did you see it? Likewise, husbands, dwell with them. That means live with them. Live with them. And it it does not mean just to put up with them. It means to live with them. Enjoy life with them. In other words, husbands are to stop thinking about themselves primarily and consider and literally submit themselves to the wife's needs. Submit to the wife's needs? Yes, your wife needs you. Uh, The number one thing a wife needs is she needs security. She desires that from you. And the greatest security that you can give to your wife is the leadership of the Word of God. Living what the Bible says. He says, first of all, likewise, dwell with them. That's courtship. Uh, Courtship, when we think about courtship, we think about, uh, I think about Andy Griffith. I courted. I courted growing up. I didn't, Miriam and I didn't date. We didn't date till after we were married, and I guess that's kind of one of the reasons why, uh, you know, you see in regards to uh, us, we still date. I, I mean, I didn't start dating my wife until we got married. Uh, my uh, father-in-law was a very, very strict man. He didn't believe in dating. Uh, he believed in courting. How many others did courting? How many of you courted? You didn't date? I'm the only one. Lord Jesus. No, you're okay, because this is the culture we live in. We live in a culture of dating. And I'm saying I did it right. I desired, and we could go out on double dates and different things like that, but for the most part, I had to go over to her house and sit on the couch and look at her and her sisters climbing all over both of us while we're trying to talk. And uh, it was just a, a real challenge. But let me tell you what that did. That, that forced us into a relationship of conversation. The relationship that my wife and I have is based upon communication. I mean, you couldn't do anything else. I mean, bless God, you're sitting in a 900-square-foot, three-bedroom, two-bath home staring at each other while you got twin sisters climbing all over us. Uh, you couldn't do anything but talk. Uh, you couldn't get away for nothing. So when we got married... Boy, we, we, we try to go on a date uh, every week, if not every week, every other week. But it was good for us because our relationship was built on communication. I'm not saying you did it wrong. But what I am saying this, a lot of times when you get married, you stop dating. You say, why, why does that happen? 
I wish I had more time to talk about it because I've got to, I've got to land this plane, but it basically revolves around this, ladies. Men are goal-oriented. They're goal-oriented. In their mind, they've got a goal. What's that goal? To marry you. And once they marry you, they cross that goal line, that finish line. They've hit that goal, and now they go to another goal. What's the other goal? I'm not saying the other goal's bad. The other goal is to make a provision for you, to provide for you. And so you stop dating and you start providing. And what I'm just saying here is you should not detach the two guys. Husbands, you should continue to date your wife. This is what the scripture says when he says, dwell with them. Dwell with them, he says. And then he goes on for a second thing. He talks about their care. He says, not only are you to to dwell with them uh, in regards to a husband's courtship, but he says, in the area of a husband's care, verse 7, he says that you are to do this according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Now, let me just go on to say this. Concerning a husband's care, uh, I have met some women that could whip my tail. Some, I mean, some real, real uh, strong women. That's not what the text is talking about. He's not talking about that. He's saying that you live with your wife with knowledge. That is the knowledge that there's something that happens to your wife that makes her the weaker vessel. This is very logical. He's not trying to be gross. He's not trying to be ugly. He's, he's not trying uh, to uh, demean or put down or push down women. What, so what is he saying? He's just saying this. He's saying, husbands, your wife has an event that happens in their life once a month that they have blood that comes out of them. And you can't have blood come out of you and not become weak. And so there's going to be a season in your wife's life every month where she is going to be weak and she's going to need to eat a steak and she's going to have to have some iron and she's going to need some rest. He says, live with them according to that knowledge. Be careful and care for your wife as the weaker vessel. That's what the text means. It doesn't mean... That you're sub, sub, Look, God did not wait, make a woman out of the foot of the man to be stomped on. Where did God make a woman? From the side. To be equal with. But in his divine structure, he has blessed women with the ability to give birth. And what a blessing that is. And husbands are to dwell with their wives, to live with their wives in such a way that they clearly understand what makes them weak once a month. And you live with them well. Number three, he talks about uh, the third thing he says is a husband's courtesy. Look at what he says. He says, and being heirs together of grace. You're co-heirs together. You are together. The two will be one And the Bible says you're together in the grace of life. Here's what we need. We need more families where grace is in place. If we had more grace in our husband and wife relationships between the two, we would not have the Christian divorce rate we have today. I'm out of time. Let me do number four, and I need to go to invitation. He says that your prayers be not hindered. This is the husband's call. The husband's call or the husband's calling. God's call upon your life as a husband, in the arena of as a Christian husband, is that God hear your prayers on behalf of your family. 
God's desire is to answer your prayer on behalf of your family. But in order to do so, according to the text, again, in first century, he's writing this first century church, but I'm telling you, this is applicable to today in 2022. If we don't want our prayers hindered, husbands, fellow husbands, we have got to understand that we are to live with our wives by the grace of God in this grace of life, understanding there's going to be times of weakness in her life, and that it's our responsibility to continue to court her, to cherish her, to love her, as God has given us this precious gift. And if we would do that, then there would be no problem with submission. But the only way to do that, first and foremost, is to come to know Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord. A little boy was at the beach, and as he was walking down the beach, he noticed a lady sitting underneath an umbrella on a, blank, on a uh, uh, towel. He walked up to her and said, Ma'am, are you a Christian? To which the lady said, Yes, son, I am. He said, uh, Do you pray every day? And the lady said, oh, yeah, yes, son. I, I mean, I may have missed a day or two, but I try to pray every single day. He said, ma'am, do you read your Bible every day? She said, yes, son. I, 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 I do everything in my power to read my, read my Bible every day. Why are you asking me so many questions? And he reached in his pocket. He said, will you hold my quarter while I go swimming? <laughs> in, that, in the mind of that little boy, he could trust a Christian. In the mind of that little boy, he could give something that was precious to him, entrusted to somebody else, because they knew God. Here's our problem in our culture today. The reason why our spouse can't trust us husbands is a lot of times because we don't know God. A lot of times a husband can't trust the wives because they don't know God. We got to get back to knowing God and letting the Lord be the Lord over our homes. And the only way to do that is to first and foremost ask this, answer this question. Is Jesus the Lord of my life? If I were to die today, do I know for sure that I'd go to heaven? Do I have a relationship with the Father? If the answer to that question is, I do not, I don't have a relationship, I've got good news for you today. Today is the day of your salvation. Could you join me as we pray today? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you'd like to trust Jesus as your Savior, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you from your heart to God's heart, would you say something like this to the Lord? It's not the prayer that saves you. But by faith, would you say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Savior. And today I ask you to forgive me of my sin. The best I know how, I repent of my sin. And I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. I'll live for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.